0: This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State For those who listen For those who are willing to listen Here's Johnny
1: This is episode 50 My enthusiasm for this project undiminished It pushes me forward to produce and continue to grow an unlikely audience Not just in the UK, but right across the world This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State It really feels like we're at another crossroads. A new administration in the US, new leadership of sorts in the battle for the soul of the Labour Party, and in Israel, decades-long sufferings of the consequences of malicious terror and thoughtless politicking. My last three episodes on Labour anti anti-Semitism, with two of its leading lights, the Abraham Accords with His Excellency, the UAE Ambassador to the UK, and justice for Malky Roth, couldn't have been more diverse and the reaction to them more raw or emotional. Scroll back if you haven't listened to any of these episodes already.
0: This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State.
1: And for those of you kind enough to have donated like Mike Faulkner did via Patreon, thanks ever so much. The links to do so are in the written intro to this podcast. Well, you could even buy me a coffee. And on the subject of anniversaries, here's a story of Palestinians, paywalls and parish pumps. The Jewish Telegraph is 70 years old. Paul Harris could talk all day. A storyteller of our oldest traditions, he's also probably the most prolific self-publisher in Anglo-Jewish history because he's the editor, proprietor and chief executive of the Jewish Telegraph. Every week and for the last 70 years, he and his mother and father before him have published
0: the newspaper. For those who listen, for those who are willing to listen, this is Johnny Gould's Jewish State. It started in Manchester on
1: their dining room table with a borrowed typewriter and 50 quid capital, but it's grown into a newsroom and advertising platform with four regional offices, Manchester,
2: Liverpool, Leeds and Glasgow. Hi folks, Boris Johnson here, and I just wanted to say how absolutely delighted I am to help celebrate 70 years of the Jewish Telegraph. It's 70 years since Frank and Vivienne Harris had a dream on the number 62 bus and willed it into being on their dining room table. 70 years that have seen expansion, consolidation, and continued success in even the most challenging of times. And above all, 70 years of scoops of top-class journalism and a faithful service to Jewish communities, first in Manchester, then across the north of England, and today right across the country and around the world. It's a tremendous story, an incredible achievement, and one of which everyone at the Jewish Telegraph should be very proud. Yom Huledet Sameach.
1: It's 95 pence a week, or £55 pounds a year behind a paywall for all four editions. There are 20 editorial and commercial staff across those four regions and it's in that regionality and news gathering that it's managed to survive this long without communal grants or aid in any way. It's a miracle, my guest today calls it. It's entirely funded by subscriptions, weekly purchases and, of course, advertising. North and North West England isn't just about those four big city communities – We think of towns and cities where substantial synagogues existed that are just no more. Middlesbrough, Sunderland, Stoke-on-Trent and virtually every town in between and around. But Paul's upbeat about how Jewish communities thrive in spite of declining numbers and points to some green shoots of recovery among the ultra-Orthodox which exacerbates a polarisation in our communities. Stay tuned for Paul Harris of The Jewish Telegraph for a story of terrifying exclusives Intercommunal Publishing Rivalries, The Prince of Pop and Sharon.
0: This is Johnny Gould's Jewish State For those who listen. For those
1: who are willing to listen. Many happy returns. 70th birthday. When your parents set this business up all those years ago, could they have anticipated a vision for this business to still be going as a Jewish newspaper?
3: I'm not sure whether we would say that they couldn't accept that it would still be going but i don't think they would have imagined that it would have expanded to the extent it has uh and that it has the reach and the reputation today that we enjoy because of course
1: in the three generations that the newspaper has existed uh the manchester community the liverpool leeds glasgow newcastle communities have moved all over the anglo-saxon world but also into the new worlds of uh, israel south africa canada the united states uh, the 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 fan of your content is now
3: worldwide isn't it it is but my when my father originally started the Jewish Telegraph the most important thing was local news so we've always worked on the premise of local news first regional news second national news third and international news fourth in that in that order and all four editions reflect this obviously there are times when um, international and national news take priority But we've never lost sight of the fact that we do serve the local communities, Manchester, Leeds, Liverpool, Glasgow and slightly beyond. um, And we are determined to give them parish pump as well as the more more serious coverage.
1: I'm absolutely delighted to hear that because, of course, that is the tradition that journalists of our generation and uh, I think our generation stretches uh, to 30 or 40 years. I came up from local radio and that was exactly it. The Ayatollah may have died in Iran, but if tipped a tipton factory on my local radio station got a grant of £100,000, that led the bulletin. The traffic news, we always led with the roads rather than the motorways. And that's the key, isn't it? The fact that you can relate to your audience, or should we say your readership, uh, which has been the prevailing, the ongoing, uh, the indomitable success of the newspaper over this span of time
3: well i suppose being slightly facetious uh, when you mentioned the ayatollah i suppose yes of course we 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 would we would report that we'd probably try to find out if we had any jewish relatives <laughs> <laughs> always
1: localized no problem with that um, now let's just talk
3: about how it started
1: 70 years ago as we said a borrowed typewriter and 50 quid on the dining table of your parents so it's great to see that with the strip lighting behind you you've progressed somewhat
3: Yes, we have. Uh, we no longer have candles. My, my parents actually met on a bus in Manchester. My father was a freelance journalist in London. He moved to Manchester to become information officer of the Zionist Central Council. Um, he joined Manchester Maccabi, where he played uh, football, tennis, hockey, and also run the club newspaper. My parents met on a bus, as I say, and the rest is history. Um, they became engaged. My, they married. My father was determined that Manchester was going to have a proper Jewish newspaper, which it didn't have. My grandfather, who was in the watch business, that was my mother's father, told my mother, let him get this Mishigas out of his system. Uh, I'll cover the, the losses for the first year and then he'll come into my business. Well, as they say, the rest is history. Uh, The paper was a success from the first year. Um, The only newspaper really covering the area was the London Jewish Chronicle, um, which had basically swallowed up every other newspaper which had dared to set up to oppose it over the years. Uh, It failed to do so with the Jewish Telegraph, which just took off.
1: And do you think it's the fact that Manchester being such a, a vibrant and big Jewish community, probably the only Jewish community in the United Kingdom that would actually challenge London in terms of numbers that, is, that has given you the backbone to be able to compete around the country?
3: I think the reason that we've competed so well is that we do news gathering probably better than any other Jewish newspaper in this country. The editor of the London Jewish Chronicle made the mistake of not realizing we had a reporter present at an event about two or three years ago, where he was asked why their news gathering was so poor compared to the Jewish Telegraph. And he said, I have to admit the Jewish Telegraph does it better than we do, which of course we uh, plastered on the front page. Uh, (laughs) But it is something we pride ourselves on. We'll go that extra mile to get the local story, but not just the local story, national and international, the Jewish Telegraph has always punched way, way, way above its weight. And when I say that, I mean I was the first Jewish journalist to get an interview with Yasser Arafat. That's a story in itself. We've had exclusives with Michael Jackson. We've developed uh, a close relationship with Sharon Osborne, who has Manchester links. And these are the sort of people we've featured in the paper, which no other newspaper has really gotten near.
1: We'll come to Yasser Arafat and Sharon Osbourne, and of course you've localised it there for me, because Ozzy Osborne's one of my lot as well in Birmingham, big hero back home. Now, one of its successes, unlike other newspaper titles, is the content isn't generally available online, uh, you know, root and branch, like perhaps you might see with the Jewish Chronicle, even with uh, uh, major newspapers um, like The Telegraph, uh, that aren't even behind a paywall, The Guardian, for example... It's not hidden behind that. So you have to buy the newspaper. You're really bucking the trend here, aren't you? There is some content there, but really the essence of this as a community newspaper is bucking the modern idea of modern available content. It thrives in this digital age.
3: 25 years ago, we, I think, were one of the first newspapers to um, begin a website or inaugurate a website, initiate it. We made a decision very, very early on that we were not going to give very much away on the web. And we didn't. Um, Throughout the years, we ran approximately three or four stories from each edition on the web. Latterly, we've had a little bit of content on Facebook, usually four or five days late. And this is deliberate. Even the personal announcements on our website used to appear a week late because it was free. Um, We made the decision earlier this year to cut even what was on our website and now all you'll see is maybe three or four paragraphs from some stories with a note saying that anybody who wants to read more can subscribe to our e-edition which we've run since april and that is behind a paywall but our website has actually changed zero since we began it 25 years ago and it looks it eventually we will upgrade it but we are a print edition we're paid for newspaper we're the only Jewish newspaper in this country which is not subsidized in some way. We live or fall ourselves. It's a family-owned business. The buck stops with me. And we you know, I have to say, when we cut the content on the web earlier this year, we had hysteria from all over the world. How dare we? We're stopping people reading it. Uh, why are we doing this? We did have to point out, and we did reply to every complaint, pointing out that for years, They've had this content free. Now, if they want it, they can pay and get it relatively inexpensively on our e-edition.
1: Long may it continue that you can reply to every complaint. Uh, I think in the modern digital age, that's probably a compliment. Now, it's a unique enterprise, as you just hinted on in the community, in the sense that it survives without communal aid or grants. It's actually a private sector business in the Jewish in, in the Jewish community, it's very unusual.
3: It's a miracle. <laughs> um, it is a, you know, it is actually, every, every it is a, a weekly miracle that we survive. We make no bones about it that we've had years when we've made losses. Um, many weeks of the year we make losses and, and effectively we're producing four editions of the newspaper very often for the benefit of the community. The community doesn't appreciate that. And this sometimes is a bone of contention where organizations expect us to publicize their activities free of charge. And we don't mind that. What we do mind is when they are expecting publicity in lieu of advertising, perhaps placing advertising elsewhere, uh, but expecting us to publicize their activities free of charge, particularly plugging events. Our bread and butter is our advertising. Obviously we make a little from the sale of the newspaper, but very little. And that was another bone of contention because um, during COVID, We've actually put the price of the paper at the cover price. It hadn't increased for 14 years. So we were charging for most of our editions 60p. We had the audacity to um, increase the cover price to 95p. And that... There was a backlash, but not in terms of cancellations. There were threats of cancellations, but there were abusive comments all over Facebook. How dare we? How dare we take advantage? We did have to point out that the cost of the paper was little more, perhaps even little, slightly less than the cost of a bar of chocolate. And, you know, every week's paper is subsidised. 95p is not bad.
1: No, it isn't. A 35p for your thoughts, uh, Paul, on that particular Message. But, but uh, let me ask you, I mean, you, you've watched, obviously, other community titles like Jewish News, which was used to be called the London Jewish News, and you've seen Metro newspaper and even the Evening Standard go free. In terms of distribution, have you ever thought about actually letting all the advertisers take the weight of the revenue and give it away and obviously increase your readership probably two or threefold within, uh, you know, the regions of the, the major cities?
3: It's possibly we couldn't because most people buy the paper in the areas we circulate in. So there would be little point in doing that. And who knows what might happen in the future. But I do feel that free papers do devalue the product. They are not the same as paid for newspapers. And there are some fine free newspapers. I'm not suggesting that aren't, but it's not the same as a paid for newspaper. choose to go out and buy it. Uh, you know, pay their hard-earned coppers to do so. It's very easy to have free papers. And who knows what circulation of free newspapers actually are. I regularly visit London and I see very often the morning after tube stations, the standard, the evening standard still piled high, copies that have never been distributed. So who knows? I mean the, the evening standard was a good example of how a newspaper saved itself by going free because its circulation had collapsed and it had no real advantage to advertisers until it did. But obviously, things have changed a lot during the um, pandemic because their circulation has collapsed, their advertising has collapsed, like most newspapers.
1: Let's talk about some of your friends. You mentioned Sharon Osborne, uh, Michael Jackson. I always think his name for such an unusual chap, he had such a normal name. Michael Jackson could be the name of a president of the show, couldn't it? It could be just, oh, yeah, me old mate, Michael Jackson. Uh, maybe you didn't make that mistake and you actually interviewed, really, the Motown
3: superstar. Well, uh, it did come <laughs> up in a shul environment. <laughs> One of my closest friends is Uri Geller. Uri Geller and Michael Jackson had a very close relationship. Um, I was invited with my family when Uri Geller and his wife Hannah decided to renew their marriage vows under a koppa because they'd never actually had a Jewish wedding. They'd had a hippie wedding previously, and they decided to get remarried or married properly at their home when they were living in Sonning, and Michael Jackson was his best man. At that stage, uh, I got introduced to Michael Jackson, spent quite a lot of time with him, and as I did the previous evening when he addressed the Oxford Union, I sat with him in his dressing room talking about all manner of things, not that I got much response, but uh, it was mainly a one-sided conversation. But um, for the Jewish Telegraph's 50th anniversary Michael Jackson sent us a handwritten message which we published.
1: Isn't that fantastic and uh, if you'll allow me I might make that the cover of our podcast with your permission sir. Okay. Is that a yes? That's a yes. Yeah because I don't want to be sued just in case it never happened. It did. (laughs) Um, I love that Michael Jackson well you know Uri Geller's Simcha let's hope the cutlery remains straight as well. Not sure it did. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Sharon Osborne as well, uh, that's a nice one. And as you say, yes, yeah, she comes from a, a Jewish family in Manchester, doesn't she?
3: Well, her father, Don Arden, uh, was a chazan at the High Crumpsel Synagogue. Uh, her aunt, until very recently, she's now in her 90s, was administrator still of that synagogue. I first came across um, Sharon Osborne after... Her aunt visited her in L.A. with members of her family. And she asked me when she came back and brought me some pictures, which we published. Would we like to speak to Sharon Osborne? Which I did. I interviewed her. She was extremely suspicious. Didn't trust me. Um, until some time later, I can't remember why she had my home number, uh, but I got a call on a Saturday night from her home. uh, And this, this voice just came on the phone said, it's Sharon. I couldn't for the life of me think who it was. And I realized who I was talking to. And she wanted some advice on something that the News of the World were about to feature. It was an interview with her brother, with whom she was having issues. And it was all to do with her father's care. And she was being accused of things that were definitely not her fault. And we talked and she asked my advice. I gave it her. And after that, I received a number of calls from her asking for help. She then decided she was going to help uh, to restore to its former glory the High Crumpsal Synagogue in Manchester, where her father had been a chazan. And she donated funds to help with its repairs. When her father died, um, she was I was in contact with her. And she was on her way to Manchester because the funeral was going to take place in Manchester and she didn't appear at the funeral. She was given a very bad press. It was suggested that because of a family rift, she'd stayed away. And that was not the case. And I knew that wasn't the case. And we published the story that Friday to explain what had happened which was that she was being pursued by the press. She didn't want to turn it into a media circus, and she didn't want to upstage her father's funeral. So she, she didn't appear, and that was the truth of the matter. Some months later, she called me and asked me if I would attend the unveiling, the memorial stone to him in Manchester. And she was due to come with her son Jack, which she did. And uh, there were literally maybe 15 or 20 people at the cemetery, It was kept very, very quiet. It was all under wraps. It was just myself and I have to say my youngest son, who's a journalist also. We were the only ones allowed in who were non-family and we were allowed to take pictures even more so. After the event, she went to the shul where her father had been a chazan. And it was highly emotional because somebody had found a recording of her late father actually singing in that shul, singing chazanas in that shul. And they played this in the, in the shul, just with a, maybe 15 or 20 people present. And um, we got to chat then, we, we spoke afterwards, and we've spoken many times since. Um, it's quite unusual. Um, she's a charming person, definitely not um, the person you sometimes see on television and portrayed in the press. But I think we did, developed over the years a trusting relationship.
1: Which is great to hear, and obviously a, a great source of Interest and stories to uh, the Manchester community and, and far and wide as well. Now, um, there's something else which intrigues me about this. Um, you, you've had unique access along the way, Paul, uh, basically part, probably because of your uh, personal relationships with people. Um, in the peace talks between Israel and the Palestinians, can you illuminate us on
3: <laughs> on that interesting story? Well, this was this, this was way before that. We're talking now about December, 1990. Um, I was on, I'm a travel writer among my other sins. And I was in Tunisia, which I visited many times with my family, my quite young family at the time. My then number two had bet me uh, that I would get an interview with Yasser Arafat. Of course, in those days um, was ensconced in Tunis uh, in his headquarters there. I thought nothing of this. And I thought, well, I was there. Well, what the hell? So I made a couple of phone calls and everybody I spoke to knew somebody else who knew somebody else who knew somebody else who could contact Arafat. But I actually never got anywhere. Finally, I made contact with the Tunisian Foreign Ministry. And not long afterwards, um, we decided to spend a night in Tunis. And uh, we wanted to see the famous Bardo Mosaic Museum. We I got a call back. And it was somebody from the PLO. And this person, all he said to me was, um, meet me in the lobby tomorrow morning in your hotel lobby. Arafat's not here, but you can meet Abdul Rahman, his number two. So uh, I was there with my wife and two young kids and I had a hire car. I was expecting I was going to follow somebody, but this young man uh, decided he was going to come with us. And we got into my car and started to drive. And I think it was fairly chilling when we heard that um, he'd been born in Jerusalem, but he'd been expelled from Israel. Uh, he was a graduate of an East European university in apparently nuclear physics, which was a little bit worrying. Anyhow, we, we drove out to the outskirts of Tunis, way, way up from everywhere. And I have to say, I was getting a little bit worried. We, he finally signalled that we should stop, and we were in the middle of a quite a modern, luxurious housing estate. We were ushered into a property which um, we could see was full of bulletproof glass. There were automatic weapons all over the place and PLO posters. And we were shown into a room with um, Abdul Rahman, uh, Arafat's number two. My kids were offered drinks. We declined. We would only allow them bottled water, uh, nothing else. I I didn't trust them. And um, we got talking, Abdul Rachman chatting away. I got a lot of interesting information from him. And the end of the interview, which was pretty lengthy, I asked Abdul Rachman whether there was any chance while I was still in Tunisia that I could actually do a telephone interview with Arafat. And I remember his words, he said, why didn't you say he wanted an interview with uh, Yasser Arafat? I said, well, I did, but I was told that he was in uh, Switzerland, and which he had been for some sort of talks. He said, right. Uh, he made a couple of phone calls. He said, you're going to meet him. And uh, Arafat had been in Geneva. He was back. We back went back into the car with this young man who uh, was referring to Abdul Rahman as uncle all the time, uh, told us not to tell uncle that he'd been smoking even, um, which was quite strange. Drove out uh, back into Tunis, right opposite the National Football Stadium, uh, and into a very, very, I can see it now, very high um, hedges around this property. You have to remember, it was only a matter of months earlier that Israel had destroyed Arafat's headquarters in um, Tunis. So we were shown in, I'm not quite sure who Arafat thought we were. He obviously thought I was pretty prestigious because he presumably wanted to meet me. I can remember my wife had her nail scissors confiscated at the door, my kids had their game boys taken off them and we were minutely searched. We were shown into a large room, there was Arafat sitting at a desk, Uh, behind him on benches uh, were members of his cabinet in inverted commas, and i decided i moved away to sit with my family on some spare space arafat uh, sort of banged on the desk and gestured to me to come and sit at the desk opposite him we got underway a few pleasantries if that's the, the word uh, to describe it and we started talking arafat said stop the next minute i know there's a what appeared to be a recording device put in front of us um which i'm presuming was probably being transmitted to somewhere else in the building. And we talked, and we talked. Arafat tried to draw me on various issues, and I wouldn't be drawn. Um, I wasn't going to express any opinions. I was there as a journalist, and I wanted to hear what he had to say. Arafat got very exercised and excited uh, at two points during the interview. The first time was when he banged down in front of me a copy of an LL in-flight magazine, said, look at that. And What was getting him so excited was an advert for the Netanyahu Diamond Exchange. They'd used a device for some reason where they had a map of medieval Jerusalem and uh, it had been juxtaposed with a photo of modern day Jerusalem over the present site. And Arafat started pointing and said, Israel expansionism. This is what Israel has done to our homeland. That's where my home was. And at that point, I did disagree with him. I said, but you're Egyptian, not from Jerusalem. He said, that was my family home. Anyhow, we we moved on from that. And the next thing he got excited about was um, some TV images, which were coming through in the room of Palestinians, members, of the PLO uh, in the desert. Uh, Israel had, had, had thrown them out and it was freezing cold. And Arafat says, isn't this terrible? Isn't this terrible? Just look what they've done. What do you think? I said, it looks bad. And that's all I would say. Well, this interview was going on and on for two hours, and he was, by this stage, beginning to to ramble a bit. And um, I decided to call the interview to a halt because we actually were there to see the museum, which we wanted to see, and we, we would have missed the opportunity because it was actually New Year's Eve. And uh, Arafat, uh, I said, well, thank you very much, at which point Arafat said, wait. And he called, well, by, I, I'd actually asked my son to take pictures. I had a video camera and a camera. He did some, but at which point Arafat then called for somebody and called for a photographer, which started um, shooting picture after picture of myself with Arafat, Arafat with myself and my family. And I said to Arafat, um, I was just concerned what he was gonna do with these pictures. You know, is there any chance I could get copies of these? He just snapped his fingers at the photographer and told him to wind the film and handed me the film, which was a bit surprising. (laughs) Uh, Arafat then said, wait, you can't go. and he decided he he had to make presentations to us. And he uh, presented my wife with a handmade Palestinian jacket, um, which I forbade her to wear for, well, until actually Israel started talking to the Palestinians. And he presented me with um, a large handmade mother of pearl jewel box, which I have in my office, in which I'm sitting at the moment. He then apologized to the kids and I've got no presents for you, but you'll come next time and I'll give you presents. At which point I had the horrific sight of him hugging my kids with his stubbly beard. And uh, I had images of Hitler, Saddam Hussein, you name it. Um, when we, we left the place, I said to my wife, do you realize what we've just done? I said the proverbial is going to hit a fan when this appears in the paper. You have to remember, nobody knew where we were. It was a risk. My office didn't know I was there. Nobody knew that we were with the PLO. Um, and bearing in mind some of uh, the criticism the Jewish Telegraph had made of the PLO over the years in very strong language, I suppose I should have been a little more worried. We went out into the uh, Tunis uh, sunshine and uh, I phoned my office. Nobody could quite believe what had gone on. Fast forward to the, f- the following Friday's paper and something of a mistake. I ran a picture of myself with the interview on the front page, sh- shaking hands with Arafat. And the proverbial did hit the fan. There were public burnings of the paper around Manchester. Threats never to advertise in it again. Uh, how dare we? Uh, man with Israel, with Jewish blood on on his hands. Um, I did have to point out this was a journalistic exercise, and I was asked, well, if Hitler had offered you an interview, would you have accepted it? I said, yes, Uh, of course, I'm a journalist. It was a major exclusive. It was obviously picked up all over the place. The most surprising thing was that I phoned the Israel embassy in London at the time and told them I knew the precise layout of his headquarters. I wanted to give them information, I phoned twice. You know, they never came back to me and I was very, very surprised because I had intel that really they didn't know. I'd been inside there. I knew the exact layout of the building, which was um, which I thought could have been quite useful. It was a fascinating exercise. Some of our Zionist pro Zionist, obviously, advertisers threatened to never to advertise again. Um, I have to say six or I think it was about eight or nine months later. Abi Nathan then made contact with Arafat. He did his famous interview. I was—I did it before him. And it wasn't long afterwards that Israel actually started talking unofficially to the PLO. And I have to say, I did write to some of those people who had told us that uh, they would never advertise with us again, never have any contact with the paper again, asked them, would did this mean that they would never uh, visit Israel again, have any contact with Israel in view of the fact that Israel were talking to Arafat. But it was, uh, it was an absolutely major, major exclusive. You know, when I look back on it now, definitely the the biggest exclusive of my career and we should have been frightened but we weren't we didn't even have time to think about it it was it was an incredible experience. An unbelievable story made believable
1: Paul I'm not sure how I can follow that you've had some battles with the Jewish Chronicle in London over the years haven't you which has sort of ended up in Ampas they realised they couldn't subsume your title like they did other titles and so kind of they've left the northwest. And north to you, haven't they?
3: Yes, the Jewish Chronicle in uh, 1960 took over uh, an existing Jewish newspaper in Manchester called the Jewish Gazette. Um, not only did it do that, but I have to preface everything I'm going to say now with the fact that uh, nobody um, at the Jewish Chronicle today Uh, was around at that time or the time of any of the other things I'm going to talk to you about. So um, there is no blame ascribed to anybody there, um, no responsibility and no criticism. They not only took over this paper, but they also approached my parents, then printers, offered them a considerable amount more to print the Jewish Gazette, which was the paper it had taken over. if they would give us notice. And this was just before Pesach at that time. My parents had no proper contract in place and they were given very short notice to go and find other printers. Thereafter followed 30 um, odd years of bitter, bitter battles with the Jewish Chronicle and its antics with its northern newspaper. This paper was run at a huge, huge loss over the years and I'll Uh, I can prove that and I'll tell you why uh, shortly. Um, It was given away free. It offered advertising free if those advertisers didn't advertise in the Jewish Telegraph. They tried to give personal announcements free to try and put a stranglehold on us. And the personal announcements, Hatch Match and Dispatch, were a major source of revenue for us, a major source of interest for our readers. There were constant battles and lies about circulation. Um, it got to the stage where we actually employed private detectives posing as waste paper collectors for six months to pick up from most of the major newspaper uh, news agents in Manchester and Leeds um, all the returns of every newspaper. They had not just the Jewish Jewish Telegraph, Jewish Gazette, Jewish Chronicle, but we had an outbuilding in our premises here. We stored these. We kept record of numbers. We also had the same firm of private detectives go into the Jewish Gazette's printing plant in Manchester. Uh, Its printer, by the way, uh, a non-Jewish man, was also the Jewish Chronicle's northern managing director, which meant that he ran the operation. We ensured that the private detective went into these premises, the printing premises, on press day and was able to see how many copies were being printed. He was posing as as a prospective client. So we were able to work out uh, from the number printed and the number of returns exactly how many copies they were distributing, and we threatened them. Before that, um, we had actually sued the Jewish Chronicle and Jewish Gazette uh, for libel, and this was a landmark case in 1978. This was a very bitter story, and it revolved around the then Jewish Telegraph Cup, which was a trophy competed for by Northern Jewish Soccer League teams and what had happened was that the Jewish Gazette's northern newspaper, the Jewish Gazette, had decided in its wisdom to report something which was totally false, uh, defamatory. Um, On that particular weekend there was a representative match between the Northern Jewish Soccer League and the Manchester Jewish Soccer League and That was on the Monday. On the Sunday, it was the final of the Jewish Telegraph Cup. We had to make a decision what our sports coverage was going to be that week. And we had decided that we would run action pictures of our own cup final, and we would run team pictures of the representative teams. The Jewish Gazette, owned by the Jewish Chronicle, decided that wasn't the reason at all and the real reason was that the um, winning team in the Jewish Telegraph Cup, uh, bearing in mind that in those days the Northern Jewish Soccer League had been forced to have a mixture of Jewish and non-Jewish players for lack of numbers, and the reason we didn't do it was because the winning team had non-Jewish and black players, which was absolutely totally false. They ran this story we demanded an apology, they refused. This dragged on for two years until uh, we got to 1978 and we had a meeting on the eve of the High Court case in which um, we were offered uh, some sort of flippant apology which would be published and no costs, no nothing towards our legal costs. To this day, I remember myself, my mother, my father, my wife who as a law graduate, we were at the home of um, Diane Gabriel Krauss in Manchester, who was trying to broker this. We just stood up and walked out and left everybody sitting there. The following morning, as we went into the High Court in Manchester, um, Leon Britton, who was um, leading for the Jewish Chronicle, he was their leading um, defense lawyer, um, approached us and offered this, again, minor apology and a small contribution to our costs. We we actually laughed uh, in their faces, literally laughed in their faces and went into court. It was a huge risk. If we had lost this libel action, it would have put us out of business because the costs would have been absolutely horrendous. But we couldn't allow our reputation to be uh, demeaned in this way. Um, we went to court. Um, It was, the case was heard by Justice Caulfield, a Northern judge, a real local lad. And this case was nail biting, frightening. As things progressed, I had a feeling we were going to win because suddenly in the witness box, uh, Justice Caulfield started calling me Paul, which was quite unusual. I just got the (laughs) feeling that he was warming towards me. On the second day, He stopped the case um, and he called the uh, lawyers, the QCs, into chambers. I wondered what the hell was going on. We all did. Our lawyer came back and he said, don't worry, Justice Caulfield likes racing tips. And he'd called us up in to see whether we knew any for the afternoon. That's that's serious. That's not apocryphal. The case went on. Leon Britton was bobbing up and down uh, as if um, he had ants in his pants and he was told to behave himself by the judge. I think the defining moment came when Leon Britton um, questioned me in the witness box and I looked him straight in the face and said, I think, you know, the answer to that, uh, Mr. Britton, you've rehearsed your witnesses so well. And he was apoplectic. He went puce, started shouting and looked at Justice Caulfield. I said, I object to what the witness has just said. And Justice Caulfield turned to him and said, Mr. Britton, you invited the witness to comment and he's done that. The, it came to Thursday, um, Thursday afternoon, which is press day. The jury was out and we were sweating, literally sweating. We didn't know what was going to happen. I had a good feeling, but you can never tell with, um, with the jury and with libel. The jury came back and found in our favour. Uh, needless to say, we cleared the front page late on that Thursday afternoon and ran the story that we'd won the libel action. There were those who actually did criticise us for taking another Jewish newspaper to court. We had no choice and we cleared our reputation, cleared our name. It was not a pleasant experience.
1: But a defining one in your newspaper's history. Now, there are a number of communities which were, of course, major centres uh, in the first say, I don't know, 40 years of uh, the Jewish Telegraph's life. Uh, Sadly, now without a community or a synagogue, we think of Middlesbrough, Sunderland, Blackpool. What is the future of the Jewish
3: North, Paul? Well, you mentioned Blackpool. Blackpool actually does have a synagogue. It has a reform synagogue still. Its Orthodox synagogue has closed. And I believe the membership has um, joined the St Anne's synagogue, which is literally only down the road. Admittedly, probably not within walking distance for some people, but it but it is there. As you probably know, Manchester is the, I believe, the biggest growing Jewish community in Europe. This is mainly charedim. Um, we have charedim coming from all over the world here, because the infrastructure is there. There are yeshivas, kollelim, um, shops schools, kindergartens, gemachs as everything they can possibly want plus affordable property compared with London or other cities. I've no worries for Manchester at all apart from the fact that the middle of the road Jewish community is and has been rapidly diminishing and disappearing. What is interesting is that there are Jewish people in a lot of these outlying areas you mentioned and for these people the Jewish Telegraph is very often their only contact with Judaism Uh, And we know this because we get calls from people who um, have suffered bereavements, very often people who have married out and want to know what they should do because their partner has died, their Jewish partner has died, or a Jewish mother um, whose husband is non-Jewish, they've brought up, uh, they've married, um, they have had a child, what do they do for a bris, Uh, what do they do when it comes to bar mitzvah, we get these calls from all over the place. And that's because the telegraph is their only link. They buy the telegraph and it's an added responsibility knowing that we are their only link with not just the community, but probably with Judaism. Obviously, a lot of these smaller communities are going to disappear. There are people still living there. I think, you know, certainly in Lancashire and surrounds, a lot of people will gravitate towards Manchester. If they want kosher food, they'll come here to buy it. Whether they come to shul for Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah is another matter. Possibly they do, certainly not at the moment. It's, it's, it's a difficult thing. It, it's difficult because these communities will, will never reappear. There have been efforts, as there have been outskirts of um, London suburbs, to establish outposts, communities. I mean, I know that's mainly for Aydin, but in Manchester, the reform community tried to establish um A congregation in the Rochdale area about 30 years ago that they had land they wanted people to move there it actually didn't happen. Um, There will be polarization there's no doubt about it and these these smaller communities will disappear. Places like Leeds which again the community has shrunk but it's still got it's still a vibrant community with vibrant shawls. Places like Liverpool again it's shrunk uh, with only one kosher shop now but again with congregations which are still carrying on. I don't see these communities dying in the next decade or two. Um, they will polarise, whether all the shuls will survive is another matter. But a lot of these congregations very, very proudly hold on to their traditions of some beautiful shuls in in Leeds and certainly in Liverpool. Manchester, I have no concerns about Glasgow. Again, uh, it's a shrinking community. A lot of the younger people move to Manchester or London once they've graduated or married or they marry partners from from these communities. But it's a vibrant community. It's still going strong where it will be in 20 or 30 years. Who knows? At the moment, um, they're thriving, I think, in their own little way.
1: Paul Harris, here's to another 70 years. Congratulations on this important anniversary! Thank you very much for joining me
0: on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. If you like Johnny's regular podcasts, think about making a donation at either Patreon.com/slash Johnny Gould or click on the PayPal icon on the donations page at JewishState.co.uk. Or buy him a coffee—he loves coffee—at coffee.com/slash Johnny Gould. That's k-o-d-a-s-h-f-i dot com slash. Tony Gould.